Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. It's July 2017, and you're listening to episode 45 of Postmodern Realities, and I'm Melanie Cogdell, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. On this episode, I'm joined by Stephen Mitchell. Stephen teaches English at Covenant Day School in Matthews, North Carolina, and is a candidate for the PhD in Humanities at Faulkner University. His dissertation is on the idea of freedom in select works of T.S. Eliot, Flannery O'Connor, and Walker Percy. In 2013, Stephen wrote a feature article for us called Alexander Solzhenitsyn Confronts the Grand Inquisitor, and it's free online at equip.org. Stephen, it's good to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, first of all, I want to start out and have you explain to our listeners what literary apologetics is. Sure. So, um, literary apologetics, I, as I as I would understand it, um, uses uh, the art of literature to consider um, or, or to look at certain questions about um, the the, relig- the Christian religious faith. And um, so, it works, I suppose, less by argument specifically in the way, say, classical philosophical apologetics work and more by, by portraiture, by portrayal, um, because literature is an art. Um, and, and so um, what you might say it often can do is um, sort of take ideas that you might find out in the philosophical world or in the theological world um, or in those realms, and then look how they flesh out um, as, as people live them out. Um, and and then that's how you might see them in literature. Often, one way of uh, one way of looking at literature is is to to look at it that way. And then uh, the apologetics end of it would be in um, in fleshing out what um, what is happening with characters, what is happening with a story given um, a particular author's uh, perspective or a particular character's perspective. We have to remember that. Um, characters in a, in a work, uh, whether it's drama, whether it's poetry, whether it's uh, fiction, um, are, are not necessarily the same thing as the author, nor are they necessarily in and of themselves expressing an author's perspective. But when you take the whole together, um, you can look at how, um, how uh, religious ideas, how moral ideas, how political philosophies, how all of those things play out. Because while literature is obviously not it's not real life in the sense of it's not a flesh and blood um, factual rendering of life. It is um, it is an attempt to picture human beings in human situations, and um, so to kind of of um, see how see how ideas are lived out is one way um, I think literary apologetics works. I do think that stories are very powerful. And I think that there's a lot to be said for interacting with theological truths or just philosophical truths or just questions through the power of story. So that's why we have started, you know, featuring articles that 
are in the category of literary apologetics. And so we strongly suggest to our listeners and our readers that read our articles to consider some of these classic works, and sometimes they're even modern works, to read them. Um, Or maybe you've never considered them. Maybe you read, you know, Stephen wrote an article for us in Hemingway. Maybe you read Hemingway in high school, but you haven't really considered how some of the worldview that's portrayed there can be a springboard to um, talking to people about Christianity. Well, you specifically wrote this article on the work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, so I want you to tell our listeners who he was and what are the importance of his books. Sure. So um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, is a Russian novelist um, of primarily 20th century. Um, He lived through... um, experienced time in the in the Russian army during um, I honestly at this point don't remember which of the world wars it was um, a, as a result of some remarks he made I guess it would have probably been two because it was remarks on Stalin um, in a private letter Solzhenitsyn ended up in the Soviet gulag system um, it was not ideological criticism it was um, actually um, military strategic criticism and um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn had been a trained engineer um, and but he'd always had a, a desire uh, to study and and to do literature. And while uh, while imprisoned in the gulag, um, he began to write. He began to write poetry, actually. Um, and of course, he had to do this secretly, often on toilet paper, um, that he would then have to dispose of because if he was caught with it, of course, his punishment would be much more severe. Um, so he would memorize it and then discard it. Um, but when he was released from the gulag, um, he uh, he began to write um, much more prolifically, and a lot of of what he portrayed in his novels um, was the the struggle of different kinds of characters, be they you know impoverished peasants, be they um, characters from the upper levels of uh, Soviet society, um, be they, you know, the highly educated technical engineers uh, with which he, you know, spent, had spent at least much of his professional life prior to the Gulag, being put into conditions where they are challenged morally and often spiritually. Um, and, And so Solzhenitsyn really began to um, examine you know, human beings in situations where one would think uh, a person would be nearly crushed, and and to watch some of them indeed give in and get crushed, but then to watch them um, show themselves to have uh, a degree of spiritual and moral fortitude. He really um, he really sort of told a story about the Soviet Union and and his literature portrayed the Soviet Union in a way that nobody else was doing, and he was so good and so successful that the Soviet Union couldn't really repress him. And, um, well, they did exile him, so he did spend some time living in the United States, but after he was writing, they couldn't imprison him any further. He was too well-known. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, and he's just widely recognized as one of the real greats um, of the 20th century Russian writers and um, in the West, widely known um, in large measure because he became such a um, dissenter 
from uh, you know, the oppressive Soviet uh, regime and the Soviet system and, and begin to understand and, and to articulate not only that um, you know, the Soviet system by itself was a problem, but that um, the, the, the spiritual impulses of human beings were of prime importance and, and, and had to be taken account of if, if you were to understand human beings and if you were to at all hope to understand or have a just society. Well, in your article, you um, say that human free will is necessary for belief in the Christian God in particular. Why is this? Right. Well, uh, in part because, of course, it's simply been um, a, a teaching of the Christian faith uh, from its inception. Um, and, and so, you know, humans have it has been declared that they have this free will. Now, obviously, even within the Christian, uh, the Christian faith and amongst theologians, there is continued debate and argument over exactly the dimensions of free will. Um, my article certainly doesn't really take that up, but um, it, it's, it's been a central tenet as part of, one, that we are, we are considered to be uh, image bearers, people who in the very structure of our of our person uh, reflect the being of God and are in some measure uh, a picture of him so if you don't have free will um, then you have a very different kind of God um, you know the, the God who left us free um, left us free to love or not to love left us free to obey or, or not obey um, and the you know the work of salvation that the Christian faith um, testifies to all of that requires human moral freedom. Um, you can't condemn um, a, a person that doesn't have human moral freedom um, and um, so uh, without it, you get determinism is is sort of basically the other option. Uh, you can get a deterministic God, I suppose um, of some sort. Um, or, or a God who determines human creatures to a particular end, um, but you you don't have the classical uh, you know triune God who acts freely himself out of love and who asks uh, for that same uh, that same reaction, I suppose, if you will, from his creatures. And, and so that's why you, you, can't, you can't give up human free will, whether, and, and you know, whether you, know, you look at this from an Orthodox Catholic or, or, or Eastern Orthodox perspective, or you look at this from a, you know, a highly Calvinistic perspective, at some level, they all are going to defend um, human free will, um, even as they disagree with it. Without it, you don't have um, you don't have sin, and 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 you 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 can't therefore have anyone who has morally offended um, the God who gave them being, and you certainly don't have a need for salvation. So um, it's it's just all bound up together. 
You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Stephen Mitchell, and in 2013, Stephen wrote a feature article for the Christian Research Journal called Alexander Solzhenitsyn Confronts the Grand Inquisitor, and it's free online at equip.org. He has a forthcoming article on apologetics in the work of author Flannery O'Connor, and so to read his upcoming article, please subscribe to the journal. A six-issue subscription is $39.50, and to subscribe... Go online to equip.org. We were just talking about free will, and you specifically talk about this in the context of a novel that Solzhenitsyn wrote um, called One Day in the Life of Ivan Desenovich, or I don't know, my, my Russian pronunciation is terrible. Okay, there you go. You can help me or with that's that. A, that's an Americanized Okay. <laughs> uh, pronunciation, but essentially so, so why is that? Let's just call that book one day. So espe- yes. why is that um, book especially good for addressing this issue of human free will? Good. Um, good question. Well, um, the book is interesting. One, because it, it is in its, uh, the kind of novel he's writing is, um, is a realistic novel. Um, you know, so it's, it's a very tight and, and precise portrait of um, life, uh, a single day in the life of a single gulag prisoner. Um, so while, again, it isn't, it isn't document, it's not documentary, it's not journalism, um, it, it is very, very close to the reality um, of, of what life in the gulag was like. And of course, you know, Solzhenitsyn experienced this himself for, for many, many, many years, um, and the gulag, one of the, one of the reasons this is important, I think, in two ways. One is that the character Ivan Denisovich, um, referred to sometimes also as Shukov in the novel, is in no way a you know an especially um, extraordinary human being. He's not he's not highly educated. He has no resources from the outside. Many times the gulag prisoners, um, well. I would say probably not many times, but if the Gulag prisoners had family members on the outside who were uh, wealthy and were willing still to associate with them, you know, sometimes they would receive food packages and stuff that could help supplement the basically nearly starvation rations that people lived on. But but uh, Ivan Denisovich has none of this. Um, he isn't particularly religious. He, he's raised in the Russian Orthodox Church, and he accepts it more or less, but not you know, not in any, any way that is consciously and continually um, informing his actions. So he, he's not especially religious. Um, and and he's, at the, he's kind of at the bottom of the prison hierarchy um, amongst the prisoners. He doesn't have, he's not a specially powerful leader. He's not wealthy. He's, he's just a guy. Um, and he's in a system, though, that is designed... Uh, to destroy the moral fiber of a human being, um, to reduce them really to uh, concern only with getting enough food to eat and, you know, not being beaten. And, and, and so in, in a system like that, Ivan resists, and he resists effectively. Um, he, he doesn't do anything grandiose in, in the sense of he doesn't save anybody's life. He doesn't leave a revolt or a rebellion. He doesn't escape. He just endures. Um, but he endures keeping his, his self-respect and 
his moral dignity and integrity intact. And the way I read, one way I read that novel is sort of like, if Ivan can do this in this situation, then the human person is not reducible to his appetites, or there's good evidence that the human person is not reducible merely to appetites. He's not determined. He is indeed you know, a free moral agent. And this is one of the things I th- that I think comes through in this novel, um, is that even an average, you know, an average Joe, like Ivan, an average Ivan, um, has the capacity and the responsibility to maintain his, um, his moral integrity, um, even in a system so abusive, you know, so brutal, um, you know, in a place where if anyone had an excuse to give it up, it would be these men and these women. And he does not. Well, your article poses Solzhenitsyn against Dostoevsky's um, literary character, the Grand Inquisitor, who, and that's um, a poem that's in his work, The Brothers Karamazov. And if you were like me, in high school, you read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. That's the one that I read in high school. And so um, I want you to just kind of explain some of that, that using that particularly literary character and who has a particular view about God and how you're weaving that character in with the work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Sure. So the Grand Inquisitor is something of a story within a story. Um, And he's invented by a character in the Brothers Karamazov, also by the name of Ivan. Um, I think it's a very common Russian name. So Ivan Karamazov is one of the characters in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. He creates this literary character called the Grand Inquisitor, who is patterned on Ivan's view of a Spanish Catholic Inquisitor, who has this fantastical experience of meeting Jesus come back to Earth in Spain during the uh, Spanish Inquisition. And he recognizes who Jesus is, and he's very, very fearful of the effect that Jesus' presence back on earth in Spain will have upon the peasants and the common people, and so he imprisons Jesus, and he has this conversation with him. And the gist of the conversation is that while on earth Jesus was a fool, in that the temptation offered him by Satan were really the tried and true means for making humanity happy. And, and so he does this really ingenious reading of the temptation accounts in the, in the Gospels. Uh, basically, you can offer humans bread, you can offer them the power of, of mystery, a kind of an unexplainable power that you can wield, and then political and moral authority. And he said, if you can get a hold of these three things, you can control human beings, because, the Grand Inquisitor declares, Human beings are essentially slaves. Uh, they, they can't bear human freedom. Uh, to expect them to do so is to be cruel to them. And it, it is much better for them to be dominated by the handful of... that There are a handful of people who can sort of take on the burden of moral choice. And what the rest of humanity really wants is somebody to tell them what to do to tell them how to live, how to think, uh, to tell them they're forgiven when they, when they do something wrong, 
And had Jesus understood this, he would have eased a lot of suffering. Uh, But instead, the Grand Inquisitor said, Christ expected men to follow him freely. He didn't use bread to get them to follow him. He didn't take political authority. He didn't take moral authority. And while he did miracles, he did not try to um, sort of wow people through, you know, mat, you know, demonstrations of his of his power and prowess. Um, so the Grand Inquisitor, in many ways, has a view of humans that those in the Gulag system, this is the way I weave it too, are trying to create this this group of of characters who are, or this group of people who are, um, you know, who have who have given over their their moral um, conscience, who have given, who have you know recognized that their their bread, their food is supplied and wholly dependent upon this, you know, the leaders of this gulag system, this prison system. Um, the, the the gulag system is in a way, a reflection of what the Grand Inquisitor says he wants to erect in the world. And, and the, 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 the crucial point, which we've kind of hit on already, that comes back to is, is simply, are human beings these free, responsible, moral agents, or are they really a mass of pathetic slaves? You know, is, is pity and the desire to eliminate all forms of suffering, the most important thing that we can do for human beings? Or is, you know, the expectation that humans um, take on themselves the burden of difficult moral choices and and be willing to endure difficult and even painful situations, um, is that the, um, the, the more proper way to treat a human being? Um, the Grand Inquisitor says, you know, recognize that they're slaves and treat them accordingly. Solzhenitsyn's whole work, his whole corpus, I think, says, uh, recognize that we are moral agents responsible for our own souls and live accordingly. And Ivan, uh, or Ivan Denisovich, Solzhenitsyn's character, because he is a, a simple, um, unsophisticated, um, you know, average man is an especially good rejoinder to the Grand Inquisitor because um, he can't be called one of the, the you know, the, the, the spiritual virtuosos, if you will, that the Grand Inquisitor recognizes and as being capable of moral choice, that handful. And yet he does resist. He does keep his moral integrity intact. So it, it's sort of I think one, it's one uh, Solzhenitsyn's way of saying human beings are, 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 are nobler creatures than the Grand Inquisitor says they are. You know, the Grand Inquisitor isn't talking about some sort of, even though he's a Catholic priest, a bishop, he's not talking about human, uh, you know, the, the, the classic Christian doctrine of the human fall. Uh, he's talking about creatures who in their essence, in their created essence, are pathetic and abject, given only to their appetites. Solzhenitsyn's character says, there's probably more to us than that. And that's how the two, I think, work together. I would like you to talk a little bit about the 
spiritual significance of his character, Ivan, resisting the Soviet gulag. I think a lot of times we automatically would go to, okay, what are the political significances of it? Because the Soviet gulag system is, you know, back in, in the 20th century, I mean, there's still other regimes in the world today that have these similar kinds of systems, um, prison systems. But what's the spiritual significance for resisting that kind of system? Right. right. Well, that kind of system is built upon the, uh, you know, certain assumptions about human beings, one of which is, is the Soviet system, at least, was, of course, an entirely materialistic assumption. So, you know, human being, there, there is no order, if you will, beyond the human order. There is no God. It was atheistic, of course. Um, there is no um, higher, um, there, is, there is no higher good beyond, you know, physical prosperity in this world to which humans can aspire. Um, and, and so, in addition to, you know, enacting a, a kind of, we, we talked, you know, in the 20th century about the Iron Curtain. Um, but regimes like this, it might be more um, accurate to talk about an Iron Dome. You know, if, if, if you, you know, just speaking metaphorically, if you, if you think about, you know, uh, God being in some sense above the earth, and, and that's only a metaphor, you know, that Iron Dome would try to prevent, you know, any souls rising to communion with God, um, you know, in, in the way that, that you know, the, the Christian faith has argued long is our, is our chief end, our chief purpose, and our chief good. So um, it, it's not, again, it's not so, like Ivan Denisovich doesn't encounter any, you know, experience any grand conversion or anything, but he's dimly aware that there is more to him than his, simply his material person and his he's not in his material appetites he's not a conglomeration of of physical appetites um, that can be dominated and or manipulated and so there's the possibility there um, in him of discovering um, you know that he is meant for God and in fact toward the end of the novel there's a minor character in the novel by the name of Alyosha who is uh, He's referred to as Alyosha the Baptist, and they're a, they're a minor, very minor religious group in Russia, always have been. And, um, and Ivan is really intrigued by Alyosha, because Alyosha seems to live with this awareness of, of God that sustains him um, in, in, a, in a way that, uh, you know, other characters um, can only sort of wonder at. Um, but But... Ivan can only really find room for it if if he's willing to defend his you know his 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 moral integrity against uh, the gulag. There's another character uh, in the book by the name of Fetchikov, and and this is a character that Ivan is often uh, paired against, who who completely relinquishes his his moral integrity. He is he is fully under the domination of the gulag system, and and. And, you know, we have to be careful, especially here in the West, of being too condemnatory of such a person. We don't know how we would respond in such a situation. But in the novel, Fetchukov has no dignity, no self-respect, will do whatever he has to do um, to get, you know, you know, another mouthful of food or 
um, you know, to avoid um, the ire of the authorities, and so he's untrustworthy. And he has not enough, he doesn't have enough respect for his being and his person to be open to the possibility that his soul was ultimately intended for God. Ivan does not experience any such, you know, uh, epiphany, but the openness is there. If you will, the curtain is drawn back or is kept back, and and the possibility that um, that God may really want something to do with me, and I may really want something to do with God, is um, is opened, kept open um, by Ivan's resistance to the gulag tyranny. This whole idea of you know gulags and so forth seems fairly, you know, remote for us in 21st century America. We're pretty affluent with our cell phones and, and entertainment and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we are politically, you know, relatively pro- politically free in the West. And so what is the significance of his work for us? Yeah. Um, we, you know, we like it. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question to think about because, if we're not careful as Westerners, right, we can read this as, well, we've we've never succumbed to that, right? So we've somehow uh, retained our freedom, retained our spiritual integrity, and, and we can pat ourselves on the back. Um, but but to read it like that, I think would um, would be naive. And and we should also remember that Solzhenitsyn himself lived for quite a long time here in the United States and was was frankly utterly unimpressed <laughs> with uh, the spiritual state of the West, especially of the United States. Um, in, in fact, he, he says that the, the spiritual training of the gulag um, was, is far superior um, to, to anything that um, currently existed in, in the Western world. But th- there is a link here, and that is that... Um, at least, it, 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 depending on how we look, we look at the West. You know, if you look at it in its wholly secular expression, um, you know, there's there there's two ways, more or less, that you can, if you will, to to, you, to kind of use the same metaphor that we were using earlier, kind of construct a dome over people to shut out the possibility of human, um, you know, human communion with the divine. And 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 both of those come through way of of manipulation of of the physical appetite. You know, in, whether the the West, you know, whether the, the the milieu in which you live is affluent, or whether it's you know a, a brutal and impoverished milieu like the Gulag, um, if both domains operate on the assumption that physical appetite is um, the highest reality. And, and I don't mean by that just food in your belly, but, you know, all of our, all of our desires for stuff. In other words, you can, you can obscure a man or a woman's spiritual vision, either by reducing him or her to such abject poverty that he or she is tempted only to consider his appetites, or by so indulging 
their app, those appetites by, by providing so much stimulation of appetite and repeated stimulation of appetite, um, you know, for material um, wealth or for material prosperity or for material comfort, that you effectively close off any real concern with, um, with, with God or with the divine as well. And so what, what these, what these at least one day can do and these others do, you know, his other novels, I think as well, is they, they keep before us this principle that, um, man is more, human beings are more than a, a collection of material appetites or physical appetites or physical desires. There's more there than a desire for affluence. Um, and 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 that we are manipulable, manipulatable. Whether we, um, you know, if we lose that that vision, we we can be manipulated either by, um, you know, having having our basic human needs denied us, or by having our base our our human needs overly indulged. In the West, the tendency is is the latter, right? Overly indulged. Um, and so he, 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 he speaks to us, I think, in that way, um, that, uh, that to seal off human beings from the divine order, whether you do that through poverty or whether you do that through affluence, is equally dangerous. And, and it's equally uh, uh, an artificial limitation of the human aspiration to know God. Um, and the hu- the purpose of the human soul and the human being created to know God. Well, this has been a very thought-provoking discussion. So finally, I want to end with some fun, rapid-fire questions for Stephen. So it's summer Stephen hamburgers or hot dogs? <laughs> well, if I had to eat either, not a big fan, it would be hamburgers. Well, I guess I could have said if you're vegan or something like that. Um, no. Would you rather do your taxes or have jury duty? Um, Pooh. I would probably rather have jury duty. And where did you go to college? Uh, for my undergraduate, I went to Pensacola Christian College, and then I've had uh, a graduate degree from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and of course I'm now working on a PhD at Faulkner University. And you live in North Carolina, so what's your favorite thing about the state of North Carolina? The mountains. Um, I, love, I love the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains, most of all. They are very pretty. Well, thanks, Stephen, for being guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. In 2013, Stephen Mitchell wrote a feature article for the Christian Research Journal called Alexander Solzhenitsyn Confronts the Grand Inquisitor, and it's free online at Equip.org. Stephen also has a forthcoming article on apologetics in the work of author Flannery O'Connor. So to read his upcoming article in the December 2017 issue, please subscribe to the journal. A six-issue subscription is $39.50, and to subscribe online, visit Equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media, like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page, and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. Follow the Bible Answer Man on Instagram, and subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate our podcast and share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Anagraf, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. 
And also make sure you go to equip.org where you can download our free smartphone app on which you can listen to the Bible Answer Man broadcast live, listen to previous broadcasts, make a donation, and subscribe to the Christian Research Journal. In addition, head to iTunes to subscribe to Hank's new podcast called Hank Unplugged. Follow Hank off the grid where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast.